to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kerland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This week, we're joined by Dr. Steve Nail. Dr. Nail has been my vet for over 30 years. He retired in 2020, just as the lockdowns began for the coronavirus. So I think his timing for that was really good. It chose a good time to step out of active practice. When he was at the barn, Steve would often make time to talk about training and about new updates in veterinary medicine. And we've both missed those conversations. So this podcast gave us a great excuse for a visit. In parts one and two, we talked about what veterinary medicine was like 30 years ago when I first met Dr. Nail, when he first came into this area. And he'd already been in practice for 20 years prior to that point. And there were things that definitely, compared to what we're doing today, it definitely felt like something out of the dark ages. So we talked about deworming, we talked about foot care, we talked about all the fancy new imaging technology that's now available for diagnosing lamenesses and, and other medical conditions. We talked about vaccinations, and now we're about to dive into the subject of the horse's digestive system. So that's where we wanted to go in the next part of this conversation. But almost as soon as I had finished my my question, you know, setting the stage for what we wanted to talk about, there was a little interruption. So to describe what was going on, let me just say that I was watching through my Zoom screen, I was watching Dr. Nail's cat doing what cats are so very good at. And all of you who have cats, I'm sure, can picture this. She wanted attention, and she was doing a very elegant job training Dr. Nail to reach out and pet her. And she was not at all shy about using negative reinforcement. So you'll hear her in a moment take center stage in our conversation. But first, I'll be introducing the whole topic of what we've been seeing over the years in relating to the horse's digestive system and how we feed them. So, you still have the stamina for another rabbit hole. (laughs) Um, So, Digestion. I mean, we've learned so much about the equine digestive system as horse owners over the last couple of decades. When I first started out learning about horses, nobody was talking about gut fill. You know, and in boarding barns, uh, horses were fed twice a day. And that was considered perfectly adequate. So the feeding has changed a lot in terms of frequency of feeding. But then we also, starting out, I didn't, I didn't see laminitic horses. I didn't see until poor Peregrine. I didn't see horses that were colicking. I didn't see my first 
colic until I was well into, until I was in my 20s. And now colic seems much more frequent. Laminitis, it's just about every other horse seems to be laminitic. We have all of these horses that can't be put out on grass. We've got this grazing animal that you can't let graze. What are some of the, the changes? What are some of the pulpits that you, your salt <laughs> boxes that you like to stand on when it comes to feeding horses? Well, I'm not one that's going to take a feed tag and, and break it down into every little bit. I mean, I tell you what, I, I, I grew up with the adage that the eye of the master feeds the horse. And, and, I, and I, think, I think there are times that we, we try to make equine nutrition for the average horse. Now, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm going to exclude the racehorse, maybe the high end, but, uh, competitive trail ride. I, I have to I have to interrupt for a second yep. because we are watching just an exquisite application of <laughs> negative reinforcement. Yeah, I know. If there you was, are. If there was ever an animal that understood, understands negative reinforcement, it is the cat. Yeah. So, so your your cat is ever <laughs> so daintily reaching out with her paw towards your ear and you are responding as you are supposed to respond by petting her <laughs> i know you're right i never thought of it that way but now as you pointed out oh god very mild soft negative reinforcement yeah and we see that it we see that it works but she is putting a little bit of pressure yes. on you well you see cats are not they they're not at all shy about applying negative reinforcement or even punishment yeah. they, they, their their ethics do not uh <laughs> limit themselves to just using positive reinforcement yeah. purring alone is clearly not adequate i must reach out and ever so daintily that's her yes that's her well because he doesn't when she's standing there he doesn't respond when she puts her paw in the middle of his face, <laughs> she responds. So, yeah. of course, she's going to do oh, that. Oh, gosh. Have you, have you got a book on clicker training the cat? There are. Oh, oh yes, I, we I, do. I, I need to look. All right, back, back, back to feeding. Back to yes. feeding. Yeah. <laughs> the horse can certainly get by on good quality forage and inadequate amounts which typically is 2% of the body weight. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, some horses may need to have some degree of supplementation. Well, they, they certainly need, if you're feeding hay, you need certainly salt, uh, trace mineralized salt. You need to have some kind of vitamin, particularly uh, mix it, it has an adequate amount of vitamin E in particular. And if they're not getting out on grass, which a lot of horses don't, or and they're not on an adequate amount. So you, you keep it simple with them. The frequency of feeding, the thing that has always amazed me is how horses will adapt, most cases, to uh, being fed twice a day, even though they are designed to be a continuous grazer. Optimally, I think that that if they, if they aren't out on adequate amount of grass, they, they really should have 
uh, hay uh, given to them on a frequent basis in order to help prevent some of that colic, to keep that flow uh, going, going on uh, with them and also reduce the chances of, of gastric ulcers, uh, that sort of thing. You know, it, it may not be practical for some people because off they go to work. You know, nobody's home through the day to feed them part of their hay. Uh, again, Alexander, I think the, the bottom the bottom line with them is that whatever you do, you want to be consistent. What whatever you do, it it shouldn't be cheap or, or inexpensive. Let's put it that way. Uh, a lot of a lot of people don't necessarily take a good solid look at the quality of the hay that they're feeding. And I'm not talking about that you got to feed premium alfalfa, but then again, you shouldn't be feeding sticks with them. So I, I think a lot of colic prevention many times is adequate exercise, consistency in how you feed. In other words, when you sleep in on Sunday morning, after you've been out all Saturday night, the horses have been used to getting fed at say six in the morning, and you don't show up until noon, then you're, you potentially set them up because you've changed how that flow goes with them. Uh, so being consistent with them and, and, and again, feeding uh, hay that's at least a decent medium quality and inadequate amounts, and certainly water, you know, good water source, a clean water source. Uh, I was always horrified to see the number of barns that, that the water buckets hadn't been probably scrubbed out who knows when, or in the water tanks. So if you follow those sorts of things, and again, exercise I think is an important part of it, and whether it's just being turned out uh, and consistency in your exercise. In other words, if you're a weekend rider, and you go out and you ride that horse for six hours on Saturday, and then maybe doesn't get ridden for another ten days. I mean, you can you can set him up uh, for a bellyache. So be consistent. Laminitis. I think there's a couple of things that revolve there. Is certainly we've gotten. And, and I, what is it, in the Morgans now, and maybe in the Arabs, they have identified genetic lines that are prone uh, 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 to uh, your laminitic episodes, and it revolves around them being too fat. So I think that we we let these horses get uh, too fat, and then they get too much sugar in their diet. Uh, you know, grass may be only, you know, our, our grasses in our pastures have not been bred specifically for the horse. They've been bred for the ruminant. And so they've got a high sugar content. And so, you know, if you've got a horse in there that's not going to handle that sugar load and he's overweight or He's starting to trim that way with a heavy cresting neck and that sort of thing. Uh, then, you know, you're you're setting them up for the potential for them to go through uh, uh, 
metabolic syndrome and, and a metabolic syndrome uh, founder. And uh, being conscious of, of, uh, of what that body weight's doing and what's going on with the foot because many of these horses go through small inflammatory changes in their, in their foot uh, before they ever have that founder episode. The character of the foot changes, the character of the soul changes. Uh, an astute farrier will pick that up uh, many times. I've had a lot of farriers call me up and say, hey doc, I've been to so-and-so's house and I've told them, you know, they need to call you and get out here and have a look at these feet. This horse is okay today, but I'm seeing these changes. And I'm thinking he's heading towards, he's heading towards a founder situation. I think the increase may be as much awareness now as, any, as anything else, but I, well, going back to your EMS horses, and, and one thing has been shown here is that change in blood flow that many times when you, we used to see these wintertime flare-ups, and uh, there's been some proof, I think you see Davis did some did a, a work on this, looking at the influence of cold weather on the, on the blood flow and the foot. And uh, some of these EMS horses that were sitting there and not really foundered, but were having changes in the foot, that when they experienced uh, uh, cold weather, that was enough to tip them over the edge and make them symptomatic. And I've often wondered about that, and I blamed part of that in the past on, which I think certainly hay and its uh, and its sugar content plays a role in it. When I, I used to see some of these guys that, boy, when the weather got extremely cold, all of a sudden, bang, you know, they get sore footed. Right. It started to make sense. They got pushed over. And, you know, when you get a founder in a metabolic syndrome horse, you are, in any founder, you're in a fight for his life. And, You've already started behind because the changes are already in the foot. Uh, the inciting episode is, has gone on. And I think if you look at Pollock's work, it's somewhere like between 22 and 40 some hours prior to the time that they get they start to be symptomatic. I mean, the train's already in the station and, uh, and you're already behind. And the EMS horses are so disproportionately uh, painful to what you'll see maybe uh, physically in the foot or radiographically. Uh, they're, they're, I'm not going to say that they're, they're, they're hopeless, but you've got to really be prepared that you've got a fight on your hands. And, and the chances are that you're going to lose, unfortunately, is... Uh, is high. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to bring a, a subject that is more joyful. <laughs> oh, good. Yes. Yeah, I like that. Okay, so we hear about CBD for dogs. So CBD without so is um, K2 
I don't know how you say it in English. Cannabioid or how do you say it? It's like marijuana, but without the psychoactive ingredient that you have in marijuana. So it's CBD only with right. no THC. So you, you hear this as an alternative therapy for dogs that have arthritis, for pain management, for, um, I think mostly it's for pain and arthritis wow. in dogs. I'm not sure. Maybe they're using it for anxiety and other things. I have, I don't know. We never hear about this in the horse world. And I know the research is just starting. It's starting in humans too, as more and more countries are now legalizing, I suppose. Um, I don't know if, the, I would think that the research is kind of parallel to the legalization and the social accept, access, acceptability of the substance. So is it discussed in the oh, horse world oh, or not at all? And, and I have very limited experience with it, but I've followed uh, several uh, discussions. And, and you know, here's, here's the other thing that we get into in the horse world is the difference between what's truly been researched and let's say a double-blinded study control situation and and antidote anecdotes and and you know what i've always said if you really want to make a lot of money in the horse world is that you go out and you grind up a bunch of rocks you put it in a really nice package you get you get alexandra and, and dominique to swear that this is the best thing since sliced bread and you go out and you sell it like crazy. And then when everybody finds out that it really doesn't work, you've already made whatever, you you change the people that are recommending it and you change the package and you go on. Because we are so geared to accepting antidotal evidence as the gospel mm -hmm. kind of situation. I think CBD is going to go through a lot of that and, and what I what I followed what I've read you know you can find people that will say yes you know it's definitely helped by horse you can find and veterinarians that say you know we've seen that what we believe has been a response but I think we're I think we're a long way off uh, from really having anything anything solid and uh, but there are drugs that because I know Fengor's on one right now for his sweet itch, mm -hmm. the, um, that it's been okayed for use in dogs, mm -hmm. but not for horses. Right. So you, there are things that we use that are, uh, what is off-label? Is How do you say it? Yeah, uh, off-label, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because the research dollars are not going to be there. So you take that that leap of faith, that risk, uh, will this be something that's safe to give to the horse and beneficial? Mm -hmm. And in his case, the risk was was worth taking because sweet itch is just such a miserable thing. Uh, well, I would tell you a little backstory on, on that one, and I'm not going to name my sources, but when that product was being developed for the dog, the equine tech service veterinarian for that company said, I realize that you don't want to go through the whole process to get it labeled because there's likely not going to be the market. 
but let's take a small test group of horses and see what happens because I'm going to bet you a dollar to a donut that every equine veterinarian out there is going to try this product. And we ought to have some idea, you know, whether we need to warn them or not. And so that, that product did have some limited testing uh, where it did show effectiveness and, and safety. Now, it didn't go through the whole thing to get itself licensed. And I, and I, I doubt if it will because the market's just too big. But you know what? If you look at a lot of the drugs that we use in the equine market, uh, they don't have a horse label on them. You know, we're, we're using off-label. And again, the big the big issue is we're just not a big enough market for that testing. Um, it's just the fact of life. And we'll, we'll begin to wind down because I'm sure that, but you know, this is one of those where we could, we could can we could have like questions yeah. for three well, we more can, hours. We can go another but, day if you want. But, I've enjoyed yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, but. But the cat will the cat will start to think that we're well, she's she, she's back on she's back on her favorite chair over here now. So that's re re resting up. <laughs> yes, for another round. For another and round. There, there's so much that has changed that has become available. I mean the horse world and it's true in small animal care as well, that the treatments that are currently available for our animals is uh, just really astounding. I mean, colic surgery. Mm -hmm. And the colic surgery, it's not, it's not a foolish thing to do where, you know, you, yeah, you can go through the surgery, but your horse isn't going to survive. A colic surgery is very survivable. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. You know, so colic surgeries have changed. Uh, so many of the lameness treatments have changed. You know, there's, there's so much that has changed. And when you bring the x-ray machines where you had to guess, did we did we get a good exposure? Because <laughs> yeah. we're not going to know until you go back to the clinic and now you bring out the portable x-ray machine and you look on the yeah. computer screen right in the barn and there you see, uh, that's just so astounding. So are there things that you, well, I, actually there are two rabbit holes we could go down. One of them is all of that comes at a price mm -hmm. and it used to be that you could do everything for your animal and you might still lose your animal mm -hmm. but you didn't lose your house <laughs> now if you do everything that's available you could well lose you know your house and everything else that you you've ever accumulated in the way of assets because the costs are extreme. So you must, I'm sure you saw everything from the people who didn't call you in for, for anything until the horse ran through a barbed wire fence and needed to be stitched up and then quarreled over having to pay the vet bill to people who would go to any and all lengths for that animal. So the cost of things. Well, you know, I've always looked at it this way. And I mean, this is, this is my view from 
my hand on the part of the elephant that's 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 primary medicine is that you know we have the abilities and the techniques that are every bit on the par of the human side. And we could have access at many levels, at some levels to the technology. But you've, you've hit it exactly right. There, there is an economic ceiling. And it's always been a dilemma for us, I think, no matter what era that, that you're in. And I don't have any answer for that. I mean, let's let's take a look at the human side. If it was not for the extensive insurance uh, network that's out there, would we be having heart transplants now or double lung transplants that that some some people unfortunately with COVID have had to go through. I know I know someone back in Indiana that went through COVID and had to have a double lung transplant and is alive today and doing well. Amazing. Amazing. So we've always had that dilemma where we've got people that are every bit on the par of the top positions out there. The thing is, there is always that economic situation. You know, animal insurance uh, has grown over the years. Uh, equine ins insurance in some ways has gotten a little more affordable, uh, a little less demanding than, than maybe what it was 30 years ago, meaning I've always been amazed well, I'm getting started to tighten up a little. I was always amazed at what the equine insurance industry would pay for, with a, with with very little evidence that the horse really needed to have the procedure outside of colic. Let's put it that way. So I think that we've always had this problem. We don't have this big third-party payer uh, network. It's going to continue to be. An issue certainly, you know, and it's like AAEP has developed a program uh, to maybe help an owner that has a situation with with a limited amount of dollars. I mean, there's some programs that are out there that you can that you find at least to help defray some of the costs. I don't have an answer for it. It's just. No, there isn't an answer. There, 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 there really is. There isn't. No, and I, you look at the small animal side, uh, and the changes, the advancements that have gone on there. You look, you look on the equine side. You talk about the colic surgeries. I mean, uh, one thing that I think made a huge difference. In, in the survivability of, of the colic uh, surgery is what is made possible, the sophisticated techniques that we see in colic surgery today has been the anesthetics and the anesthetic management. Now, when I was in vet school, our anesthesia, general anesthesia of the horse was so primitive compared to today. And, and a lot of the problem that you had was that you could not keep that horse under 
prolonged anesthesia with the technique or, or with, with anesthesia that was used then versus now. And so those techniques have been able to come along because that anesthesia is better. I think the other th development that's happened in equine uh, two is that how we've learned, uh, the surgeons have learned uh, to manage local anesthesia uh, and make it safe to where there's some procedures today that can be done standing. Necessarily colic surgery. Mm -hmm. Some of these things can be done standing today and take away some of that, some of that risk. But the cost in, in, in the payment, you know, again, I've, I've seen, like you say, uh, I, I, I don't know how, how we get around it. We're going to become more and more sophisticated. We're going to be able to do a lot more things. The problem is going to be you know, how, how do we pay for it. And it is, it is a hard, you know, when you know that you could extend the life of your beloved animal mm -hmm. by some period if you just reached a little deeper into your pocket, but you can't. No. And, and I think that's harder than the situation where the, what is limited is what veterinary medicine can do. Mm -hmm. And those options are just, they're not, they're just not there. We don't know how to fix you know, that we, we don't have colic surgery available. So it's either the, you, the, the horse survives the colic on the farm or at some point you humanely euthanize him, mm -hmm. but you're not up against that economic choice of do I bankrupt myself and still maybe lose my, right. my animal. It's a very hard choice. It's a very hard choice, which brings us to another topic. Which is we're not we're not in happy topics right now. We'll get back to some happy. <laughs> Come on, Dominique, you're going to have to pull us out of this. Yeah, but that whole well, <laughs> um, is something that you would have become very skilled at was helping owners to say goodbye or to recognize when it was enough. You know, when the the quality of that horse's life, that dog or the cat's life had declined so much that it was it was time to stop. Yeah. I, you know, a uh, very colleague of mine once said, uh, you know, the owner, he said, euthanasia should, is, it should never be a pleasurable experience. And that uh, the owners, don't realize the stress that we go through in, in making and uh, having to, to recommend uh, that that situation. And uh, you know, I, I've had enough of my own animals that I've had to put down over the years, and I will have to admit that. When it came to that time, I usually would ask a trusted colleague <laughs> to do that. Um, but I think, you know, there's, the way I always framed it is, certainly there is the catastrophic injury. 
where it's obvious. Where it's, even though you don't want to admit to it, it's obvious as to what's got to happen. I think the, uh, the, the hard ones are the prolonged illnesses. Uh, the horse that's foundered badly and the owner just doesn't want to give up. But that horse is pain every day. You know, he's laying down all the time. He just cannot find a position. Or, or the chronically ill dog or cat with kidney disease or something along that line. And, and I would tell you the one when I, that small animal was, you know, here's, here's the older couple that come in with the, you know, the 15 year old cat with chronic renal failure and you're obviously at, at the end point. And, you know, that's their family. Their family's up and grown up. They're, they're gone. Nobody lives close by anymore. You know, and maybe one of them is chronically ill at this point. I hope I don't make myself cry here. Uh, but you know, those were those were tough, those were tough times, you know, to, to say to the owner, we've done all we can, whether it be the horse, the dog, and the cat. And, and, and there's no good days. There's no good days left at this point in time. You know, I said, you know, many times the, the animal is going to tell you. Animal, yeah. we just have to be willing to look. And when when, yeah. when there's when the bad days are outnumbering the good, and uh, and the animal's telling you, because the hardest part is to decide to let them go. And many times people do feel guilty. You know, what else could I've done? That sort of thing. And but yet, there's 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 a stop point in there. And you know, I think James Harriet. And I'm going to paraphrase it in one of one of his books, and I don't remember which one, um, talked about euthanasia. And the way I took it, the way he put it was that, you know, we've been given the responsibility to care for our animals and to care for them even with the hard decisions and at that end point. It's, it's our responsibility. It's not, he said, God gave us that responsibility and we need to be willing to take it. And I, thought, I, thought, I thought he put it really, really well. And even though it's a responsibility we'd like to shirk at times, we just can't. I always think of it as the last great gift that we can give our animals. Yeah, yeah, peace. Yeah. Jeez, yeah, yeah, and it's 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 a tough one, and uh, uh, <laughs> a little story on myself is that when I retired, uh, I, I got a lot of messages, and uh, <laughs> and many of them did revolve around where people. Re it wasn't that I saved the animal's life, but I was there. I was there at the end, and how much they they appreciated, you know, how how I, how I dealt with it. And I told Kathy, my wife, I said, "Oh my God, it makes it almost look like I put more 
more down <laughs> than, I, than I actually help. But but that's what sticks in people's minds. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can relate totally to that because I remember when my vet was there to put down my Paco, my dog. Um, it was a Saturday, the office was closed and they came to my place and I will never forget it. I will always be grateful for that because that I wanted him to go in the yard at his place. I didn't want to have to bring him to the clinic. And so I was able to give that to him and it made me much more peaceful mm -hmm. afterwards that I was able to give that to him. And that was thanks to the vet who accepted to come uh, to my place, even though it was close, I will never yeah. forget no, that. Those are those are always the those are always the time that are that are, that are that's tough. And, uh, and, and again, as my friend said, it's it should never be pleasurable, and it definitely is not. And it's, uh, it's a time. It's it's a time that you hope that you don't have an adventure <laughs> when it happens, but you know. Well, the horse, it can be complicated because it's yeah. a big animal. Um, and then, you know, what, what you do with the body afterwards and all that. Um, so it's something that uh, is good to think mm -hmm. about beforehand. You know, if your horse uh, is in the middle of an aisle and you have to euthanize him, how you get it out afterwards and all that, those are things yeah. you need to think yeah. about. Yeah, it's not fun, but uh, I'm I'm thinking we should be thinking about foals. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That, that, you know, and and I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking is what this shows us is how important a role that you and all veterinarians play in our horses' lives. That when times are good. We only saw you twice a year. Right. And we would have these wonderful, maybe not quite so long as today, but long conversations. That's which right. Which are always such a pleasure. And when times were good, we didn't see you very often. Right. And when times were not good, when things went wrong in our horse's health, you were always there. And you, you know, you were a much valued and important part of my horses' lives, and you know yeah. how important yeah. my horses, you know, when Peregrine is, you know, central and dear to my heart, and I'm glad that you were part of his life. Oh, I, pre I appreciate uh, and, that. And that you saw him when he was uh, very young, and when his stifles were at <laughs> their most problematic, and you saw how you saw what that did to him behaviorally yeah. as well as physically and then you saw over the years the change you know the, the growth the change that occurred as as the clicker training changed his life definitely so i was really glad that you were part of that and well, i appreciate I'm sure you were really allowed to be retired <laughs> Oh, but believe me, it was. I, I said, I put in. I put in fifty years, and I wasn't going to put in another fifty. Yeah, <laughs> so it was time. It was well. It was time. Yeah, it was, it was it's fun. been a delightful, delightful afternoon. We thank oh, you oh, enormously. Welcome. Thank and you. At some point, when you're on the side of the river, come and I'm, come for a visit. 
I will, and and I'm not sure that that little panda is ever going to make up to me, even though the number of times that I think I tried to save her life, she's never been fully appreciative. Uh, but, well, you will, you will definitely now have to come for a visit and tell her I am not wearing my veterinary hat <laughs> at all. We can be friends. There we go, Dominique. Yes. It was it was great to meet you and uh, and uh, interact. Very nice. And Thank if you. I can ever help you again, why why don't hesitate? Uh, hesitate. This was talk. a delight. So we may well say we need another round of this. Sounds good. I, I never run out of stories. That's what my wife says. You've, you've accumulated all these stories. So. I'll bet. I'll bet. So time time to pull out the computer and get them down, because look what James Harriet did. That's well, that's true. And the statute of limitations is out on a lot of them, so yes. I, I'm okay. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's all right. right. Goodbye. Well, we will say goodbye. Be safe. Bye. 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 Thank you. Listening to this, I'm sure you now understand why Dr. Nail was my vet for 30 years. There's not much to add except to say again, Steve, thank you. Thank you from all the horses and especially from Peregrine. You gave him such, such good care. Have a great retirement. And I do hope you come for a visit now and then so we can carry on the conversation. And for everyone listening, have fun with your horses. <laughs> <laughs>